thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor, we're planning to help industry fuel switch to hydrogen. And when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Visit equinor.co.uk. Britain can be China's best partner in the West, said the Chancellor, George Osborne, in a speech in Shanghai in 2015. Of course, there will be ups and downs in the road ahead, but by sticking together, we can make this a golden era for the UK-China relationship. So, six years into George Osborne's golden era, how's that working out? We are in a very dangerous moment, I think, with China. A trade union has called the government's delay in approving construction of the nuclear reactor at Hinkley Point as bewildering and bonkers. It's not clear if Theresa May is concerned about the growing costs or warnings about Chinese state investment in a sensitive industry. There's no point in taking back control from Brussels, only to hand it over to Beijing. U.S. President Donald Trump has made his final decision to impose tariffs worth 50 billion U.S. dollars on Chinese goods. A day of defiance in Hong Kong as thousands surrounded the city's legislature. China has warned that the UK could face economic retaliation following the decision to exclude the Chinese firm Huawei from the UK's 5G mobile network. We raised this with 27 partners to call out uh, the government of China for its human rights abuses of the Uyghurs, also Hong Kong. Hong Kong, Huawei, the repression of the Uyghurs, trouble in the South China Sea, and a ruthless leader in President Xi Jinping, who now threatens to go on and on, and on. Osborne's golden era was nothing if not short-lived, and frankly seems a pretty long time ago now. Not only do I look back on it and wince, I winced at the time. While they were swigging pints with Xi Jinping, people were being incarcerated in Xinjiang, and uh, the Chinese were preparing, even implementing, the crackdown in Hong Kong. So I think all that golden age of relations was a load of baloney. That was the Conservative peer, Chris Patton, the former UK governor of Hong Kong, who we'll be hearing more from later in the podcast. And of course, this very weekend, the people of Hong Kong go to the polls for a legislative election which you'd struggle to characterise as in any sense democratic or fair. The number of council members who the public can actually vote for has been dramatically reduced while so-called patriot laws crafted in Beijing mean candidates have been vetted by the Chinese government before they can even take part. Most of the main opposition parties have already pulled out. With anti-China sentiment now on the rise across the West, and with Tory MPs pressing the UK government to take a harder and harder line against Beijing, it's difficult to be optimistic about how all this will pan out. So this week I thought we'd try to forget about Covid and take a break from Westminster's 24-hour party scene, Christmas cheese and wine notwithstanding, and take a look at Britain's relationship with the world's newest and perhaps oldest economic superpower. From the opium wars of the mid-19th century to the peaceful handover of Hong Kong in 1997, from the shared battlefields of the Second World War in Asia 
to the recent angry tussles over Huawei and 5G. Relations between Britain and China have swung back and forth down the years. So from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at the UK-China relationship and asking if there's any hope that these two great nations can finally start to get along. There are many, many places you could start a discussion of the centuries-old relationship between Britain and China. But I'm going to start this one on the beach. The year is 1839, and the Chinese government has a problem. British drug smugglers are flooding the southeast corner of their nation with illegal opium, shipped in from parts of Bengal. It was a lucrative trade, as drug running tends to be. And the effects on the local population were stark. Addiction problems ran wild, and money was flooding out of the country. The Chinese government sent a pleading letter appealing to Queen Victoria to stop the illegal trade. It was ignored, or possibly lost in the post. Finally, a high-ranking Chinese official was dispatched to the smuggler's haven, the port city now known as Huangzhou, to take action. His team was devastatingly effective, seizing more than a 1,000 tonnes of processed opium from warehouses and methodically destroying the lot by burying it in pits of salt and lime on a beach on the South China Sea. Back in London, the British were furious and dispatched a naval fleet in response. The first opium war was underway. The opium wars of the mid-19th century still loom very large in the minds of the Chinese. This is Rana Mitter, Professor of History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford. The first one, between 1839 and 42, was essentially fought between a relatively undeveloped Chinese navy and a British navy, which of course was essentially armoured by the products of the Industrial Revolution. This was a war essentially fought over, from the British point of view, the idea that they should use their industrial strength to create new imperial possessions. It's become known as the Opium War because the good that the British wanted to push through the doors of China, which they were opening, was processed opium, uh, drugs, in other words. This was being grown in large part in one of their other newer possessions, the Indian province of Bengal, but once it had been made and processed, had to be sold somewhere. And it turned out that it was an extremely effective way of solving the British trade deficit. After a year or two of bloody conflict, Britain's superior fleet seized Chinese ports and forced the regime to sue for peace. In the resulting treaty, five Chinese ports were opened to British trade and residents, and the British government took substantial reparations, plus full control of the island of Hong Kong. Unsurprisingly, the episode has never been forgotten in Beijing. That bit of history is well-remembered in China because it fits into a wider narrative, the idea of what they call the Hundred Years of Humiliation by Nian Guoshu. And this is the idea that actually starting with the Opium Wars, the whole period up to really the end of World War II, was a succession of events by which outside powers, Britain, France, the United States, the Japanese, all of them were trying to carve up bits of Chinese territory, giving themselves special trading and legal rights to make life easier for them. And thinking of the way in which for a century or so China was essentially made to do what a variety of other stronger outside powers told it to do, 
is an immensely important source of fuel for the strongly nationalistic feeling which very much exists in Chinese foreign policy even today. And just to put that century into context, if you zoom out further, China would see that as something that stands out because prior to that, it rightly saw itself as one of the world's great nations. One of the things that you hear frequently in China today is that China, by rising to global eminence, is just regaining the place that it had for most of the past millennium or more. And they would regard you know, really 200 years or so between, let's say, the mid-19th century and perhaps, you know, the beginning of the 21st century and a half anyway, as being a dreadful, dreadful anomaly. That one exceptional period where China was victimised, was humiliated, was bullied, was forced to do things it didn't want to do, and that it is now returning to a period which existed before of being dominant in the region. Now, what did that dominance consist of? Well, it wasn't just military. You might argue that the cultural influence that China had in the region was even more important. There are many places, Japan would be a good example, that were never conquered by China, but actually shared many of its norms. The system of writing, which was adapted in Japan, but is essentially very, very similar. Systems of religious belief. So Buddhism came across from India through China, eventually made its way to Japan. Ideas of harmony, hierarchy, order that have underpinned Chinese society. Well, they made their way also to Japan, to Vietnam, to other parts of Asia that were, again, not necessarily formally ruled by the Chinese, but became part of the world where Chinese norms were dominant. And from the mid-19th century, with the arrival of the West and the smashing open of the doors of China by Western gunships, that world disappeared pretty much forever. Is China right to feel aggrieved about the way it was treated by other powers in the 19th and early 20th century? There's a lot of justification in the way in which China thinks about the raw deal that it was dealt in the late 19th, early 20th century. Just let me do a couple of quick bullet points about what we're talking about here. The 1839-42 Opium Wars basically kicked the door open for the British to sell opium in China. 1860, you get the Anglo-French Wars, which end, amongst other things, with the burning down of the Summer Palace outside Beijing. Huge gesture of humiliation to the royal imperial family. 1898, not only there are concessions to Russia, but of course more of the territories adjoining Hong Kong get handed over. 1904... A Russo-Japanese war begins, not even China involved, but it's on Chinese territory up in Manchuria and ends with part of that being conceded. And then, in a sense, the big one, 1931, on the 18th of September, you get a massive Japanese force essentially launching a coup in Manchuria and essentially occupying the whole of that region for the next 14 years. So just as a kind of bullet point list, it's easy to see why even though that was more than three quarters of a century ago for most of it, it still sits as a sort of social memory, as a kind of collective consciousness in the mind, not only of Chinese policymakers, but also ordinary Chinese citizens who learn about this in school and are doubly resentful about the way in which the outside world invaded and occupied China and also are increasingly angry that the rest of the world doesn't seem to know very much about that history or chooses for whatever reason not to remember it. Does that fuel a modern day animosity to some degree towards Western powers and Japan and particularly to Britain? The Chinese attitude today towards the Western powers is very, very ambivalent because on the one hand, it has elements of anger and resentment, 
but it also has huge elements of admiration. And you can't understand the way that China's policymakers think today without understanding both of those elements. The United States, in particular, was called by Mao, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, back in the 1950s, I think, the most respected enemy. Britain is also, I think, very much in the fork of ambivalence, if uh, one might use a cutlery metaphor for this particular um, duality of thinking. One tine of the fork, if I may push it a bit further, is, I think, a continued feeling that Britain was first on the block when it came to that historical set of aggressions against China. But at the same time, Britain is also regarded as a country that China should have a lot of respect for in a variety of reasons. One is the long-standing association, not absent today, with British education. Some of the most important figures who you know, negotiated on new trade deals and trying to essentially regain China's sovereignty did so in the knowledge that actually some of the biggest investors in China in the early 20th century were British. I think it's also fair to say that there's one element that is, again, reasonably well remembered in China, almost forgotten in Britain. And that's the fact that uh, World War II in Asia involved an alliance of three countries against Japan, or three major countries, the United States, the British Empire, and China. If the Chinese hadn't kept fighting until Pearl Harbor, many years into the, the war in Asia actually having begun, then the British and the Americans wouldn't have had a China front to actually fight on. So those quite complex historical memories, I think, mean that there is anger and resentment about some aspects of Britain's presence uh, in China's history, but there is also huge admiration. The one area where British and Chinese societies will forever be tied is through the gleaming city region of Hong Kong. Since Britain first claimed the 30-square-mile island off the Chinese mainland in 1842, Hong Kong has proved an endless bone of contention between London and Beijing. The city-state was governed by Britain for more than a century and a half until 1997, when a final 99-year lease expired and it was handed back to China without a shot being fired. The territory that was returned to Beijing was an extraordinary one one of the richest, most developed and densely populated cities in the world, but one the British had ruled almost entirely in colonial fashion, with no real democracy at all until the final few years. So how is the British governorship of Hong Kong viewed now through Chinese eyes? Well, that depends on who you are asking. This is Professor Steve Sang, director of the China Institute at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. He's originally from Hong Kong, but has lived and worked in the UK for the past 40 years. If you are asking about the generation of young people who were born after the end of British colonial rule in particular, they're very nostalgic about the colonial rule, because from their memory... The colonial rule was the tail end of British rule in Hong Kong, an extraordinary period in colonial history the world over, a period when the local population regularly gave 70% or higher approval rating to whoever the governor was at the time. That was because it was a system that knew if it did not deliver what people in Hong Kong want, People in Hong Kong could simply choose to end British rule more quickly and be part of Mother China, 
the following month. And therefore, you had a situation where even though Hong Kong was a colonial autocracy, the government behaved as responsively to public opinion as any democratically elected, accountable government would have done. And that's why I think people in Hong Kong, for those who are in favour of democracy and human rights, would have a real nostalgia about the British colonial past. But if you are looking at the authorities in Hong Kong, then you are looking at people who are now required to wear their loyalties to the Communist Party on their sleeves. In which case, they would tell you that the colonial period really wasn't anything like what these naive young people thought, that it was not a very nice period of time, that in the 153 years of British colonial rule, the British never gave people of Hong Kong democracy. What would the arguments have been about the way that Britain governed Hong Kong in those early years? It was at the ascending period of Queen Victoria's empire, at a time when racial discrimination was institutionalised and seen in approving lights. There were clear discriminations against the Chinese populations in that period, requirements that were imposed on the local Chinese population that would not be required of the expatriate white community in Hong Kong, such as the requirement of carrying a lit lantern after dark. If you walk anywhere in the city, for the simple assumptions that if you were a Chinese person trying to move around in the dark, you might be there trying to commit a crime something that you would not assume an expatriate English person in Hong Kong is to remotely be capable of doing. But at the same time, Hong Kong grew very quickly from a cluster of fishing villages and small community of about 7,000 people to a 100,000, 200,000 in a decade or two, not through any coercion of the British but by its sheer attractiveness to Chinese in the nearby Guangdong province. Because for all the racial discriminations, the British colonial administration provided stability, good order, as well as an independent judiciary that delivered justice, even to the local native population. Is the fact that Hong Kong is a sort of wealthy, impressive place in its own right, is that viewed as a success of British rule or as something separate to that? In the 1980s, when the Chinese government negotiated with the UK for the future of Hong Kong, they did grudgingly acknowledge that British rule was responsible for the phenomenal success of Hong Kong. Now, the Chinese economy since the 1980s have grown so phenomenally, they are now taking the view that the phenomenal success of Hong Kong was largely because of the work of the Chinese people of Hong Kong, the entrepreneurship and the hardworking and the ethos and above all, the Chinese nest of that population. What we have as a historical reality was that People in China did have enormous entrepreneurial capacity. They are incredibly hardworking 
and willing to advance themselves, but they could only do so when they have a political framework that provides stability, good order, and predictable governance and government policies. Now that was delivered from the nineteenth century, all the way certainly through until the nineteen seventies, if not the nineteen eighties, in Hong Kong. Through the existence of a British administration, but that administration would come to the sharpest of ends in 1997, creating an inevitable flashpoint between London and Beijing. Coming up in part two, we'll hear from some of those actually involved in the handover of Hong Kong, and consider what it said about the shifting balance of power between China and Britain. And we'll look at 21st-century relations between the two countries, and where the current deep freeze is likely to be headed. Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question: Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor, we believe so. That's because when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Our H2H Salt End project is planning to bring hydrogen power to the Humber, the UK's most carbon-intensive industrial cluster. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. It kind of goes without saying that the Cold War, which dominated geopolitics through the latter half of the 20th century, was not exactly a fruitful time for UK-China relations. And yet, the looming expiry of Britain's 99-year lease over parts of Hong Kong meant that London and Beijing were simply forced to work together to hammer out a future for the region. Over the decades, Britain has been much more intimately involved with China than any other European country because of Hong Kong. This is Peter Ricketts, a 40-year UK diplomat who led the Foreign Office under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And then served as national security adviser to David Cameron. In the 1980s, he was one of the negotiating team which thrashed out a deal with China over Hong Kong. We held the largest part of Hong Kong on a hundred-year lease, which was due to run out in 1997, and therefore negotiation was necessary to work out what was going to happen. And the British side began by hoping that they would be able to agree an extension of the lease. Continued British sovereignty beyond 1997. Those hopes were shattered in September 1982, when Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher made her first trip to Beijing for talks with Chinese Premier Deng Xiaoping. She was told, in no uncertain terms, that Britain's sovereignty would indeed end in 1997, and reminded that the region could easily be taken by force if necessary. Deng Xiaoping killed that. But he did hold out the prospect that China could retain autonomy over its economy, its social policy, well beyond 1997, and that was the point of balance in the negotiation. China needed Britain's support to ensure the return of a functioning Hong Kong, and Britain was determined to use that leverage to get out of the Chinese detailed commitments that Hong Kong's way of life would continue, and both sides achieved their objectives. Britain agreed to hand over sovereignty, rather against Margaret Thatcher's better judgment, and the Chinese agreed a detailed written text specifying the autonomy that Hong Kong would continue to enjoy 
beyond 1997. The one issue which Britain couldn't crack open in those negotiations was democracy in Hong Kong. Deng Xiaoping was absolutely determined there wouldn't be any real political choice in Hong Kong under Chinese sovereignty. And that laid the seeds for all the problems that have arisen in the last five years. Did Britain have any choice in terms of handing over sovereignty? Obviously, it wasn't something Margaret Thatcher wanted to do. Did she have an alternative? Margaret Thatcher tested every possible alternative to destruction before accepting that Britain would have to hand over sovereignty of British territory to China. It was absolutely against her instincts. But the more she looked at it, the more she realised that unless we could work in cooperation with China, then business confidence in Hong Kong would collapse. And so she eventually, I think, came to the view there was no alternative but to accept that sovereignty would return to China. But she was determined to negotiate that against some pretty clear guarantees, which on paper she got. In Hong Kong, says Professor Steve Sang, the 1984 agreement was largely welcomed. Hong Kong's basic freedoms and autonomy had been secured for a further 50 years beyond the official handover date. Or so it seemed. There was a sense of relief in Hong Kong. It was a time when people had very active memories of the chaos of the late Maoist era in China. People in Hong Kong would remember dead bodies with their hands tied behind their back and a bullet hole in their head, floating down the Pearl River right into Victoria Harbour in Hong Kong. People in the middle of 1980s really were not very keen about the prospect of Hong Kong becoming part of China, but they also realised that there were no real alternative. And you have others who genuinely celebrated the return of Chinese sovereignty, and a bit of a mix of both. But there was no sense of hostility to the departing British. They were well respected and well treated when farewell were made to them. The agreement seemed broadly acceptable to all concerned. A triumph of diplomacy, you might say. But did British politicians really believe the 50-year treaty and Beijing's firm promise of one country with two systems would actually be adhered to? I was moderately optimistic. This is Chris Patton, the Conservative peer who served as the last ever British governor of Hong Kong in the years leading up to the 1997 handover. I thought it would be surprising if the Chinese had made so much fuss crossing every T and dotting every I for years and then simply walk away from all those agreements when they took over. I also thought that it would be absurd for the Chinese Communist Party to try to upset everything. They were taking over a Rolls-Royce. All they had to do was to turn on the engine and off it would go. So what would be the point of fiddling around with things under the bonnet? In that sense, I was moderately optimistic. But I suppose if you looked at the at the history of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, you would have tempered your optimism because, as a great um, sinologist, Jonathan Mirsky, who died recently, would say, you can't ever forget that there are a lot of bad people and they're doing bad things, as is happening now in Xinjiang and Tibet and elsewhere. Is it fair for me to say that that deal looks naive in retrospect? 
It's fair to say in retrospect, but you've got to remember that for at least 10 years, maybe slightly more after 1997, it looked as though by and large the Chinese were were standing by their word. Not They weren't behaving perfectly. There was more Beijing influence in Hong Kong. And it's also true that they went back on the promises they'd made about the development of democracy being a matter for Hong Kongers themselves to decide. But by and large, before Xi Jinping became the dictator in China, they hadn't behaved too badly. And you could say then that the joint declaration was still by and large working. But if you ask whether in 1997, when we left, we are absolutely confident Hong Kong would uh, remain the same, I think that there was some naivete then, particularly on the part of those who thought that inevitably China was going to become a more open society and more democratic, and that therefore mainland China would in due course become more like Hong Kong rather than Hong Kong becoming more like communist mainland China. I think that was naive, but it was certainly a sentiment widely held after the Chinese had joined the World Trade Organization in the early 2000s. Tony Blair, who was then prime minister, I think it was in 2005, said that the Chinese were now on an unstoppable path to democracy. Well, we know that that was a load of baloney. And Xi Jinping, of course, went back on anything that resembled reform, regarding China as being faced with a number of existential problems if the Communist Party were to stay in power. And a lot of those were involved in the attributes of open societies and liberal democracy. And one reason why he came down so hard on Hong Kong was that Hong Kong represents most of those things, free speech, uh, rule of law, right of protest, and the development of accountable government. Those are all things which the Chinese, of course, really fear as existential threats to them. In the years since the Chinese handover, pro-democracy campaigners in Hong Kong have fought with little success for a system of true universal suffrage. The so-called Umbrella Revolution of 2014 was quashed by pro-Beijing authorities, but the trigger for a major clampdown in Hong Kong came in 2019, with passage of a new law making it easier to extradite criminals to the Chinese mainland. When wide-scale and largely peaceful protests erupted, the Chinese authorities struck back with venom. Hong Kong, at least two people are in serious condition after violent protests ran into the night. Police say 11 people were arrested during Wednesday's demonstrations. For where China's parliament has reportedly passed a controversial national security law for Hong Kong. But the so enactment of this legislation imposed by the authorities in Beijing on the people of Hong Kong constitutes a clear and serious breach of the joint declaration. Last year's Hong Kong legislative elections were delayed and eventually rescheduled for this coming weekend. In the meantime, new security laws were passed, clamping down on protest movements and freedom of speech. The result is that few in the West consider these elections to be remotely free or fair, with some opposition candidates arrested or jailed and the rest vetted before even being allowed to take part. It was up to two million people who at one point demonstrated last year. Chris Patton. And you saw old, young, people pushing prams, students, people in blue-collar jobs, people from office jobs, all of them together. When you saw that and you look at what would have been the likely outcome of uh, 
elections for the Legislative Council in 2020, one reason why the Chinese Communists introduced the national security law was to prevent those elections taking place because their candidates would have been slaughtered. The pro-Beijing authorities in Hong Kong, of course, see things very differently. I had a Zoom call on Tuesday with Regina Ip, a veteran pro-regime member of the Legislative Council and a relentless defender of the new hardline approach. She was generous with her time and charming in her manner and absolutely hard as nails on the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. The right to stand for election is not absolute. It can be restricted by law. You know, it has always been subject to the law. Age, mental capacity, not being bankrupt and all that. Because of the events in the past few years, when some members of the legislature actually tried to achieve regime change, so Beijing felt it needed to impose a candidate eligibility verification mechanism to make sure that only those who truly support our constitutional system and one country, two systems, can take part in the elections. We've seen almost 50 oppositions, politicians prosecuted this year under the new national security laws. That doesn't look like the open, free Hong Kong that we're used to seeing. That's the consequences of their participation in the 2019 riots and in organizing so-called primaries, which are not lawful, with a view to overturning the existing constitutional system. And some of them have been charged under public order ordinance for taking part in unauthorized assemblies, etc. I'm afraid that's the legal consequences of their participation in unlawful activities in the past two years. You call them riots, but a lot of people would call them very big, peaceful protests, incorporating maybe a quarter of the population of Hong Kong. This is very unusual. They weren't all rioting, were they? Um, The first mass public gathering started as peaceful protests, but soon became violent. Some started to take out bricks and throwing them at policemen, burning on pedestrians' bridges, setting innocent bystanders on fire, killing one bystander with brick shooting the police with arrows, crossbows and slings, and occupying university campuses. What appeared to be a civil protest actually turned out to be an insurgency. Does freedom of speech still exist in Hong Kong, do you think? Certainly. The Hong Kong Free Press is active. Many liberal media, which are always critical of government and even of Beijing, they're still active, you know. But others are not. And we saw the newspaper founder Jimmy Lai sentenced to prison just this week for lighting a candle as a vigil. Again, that doesn't feel like freedom of speech is alive and well as we would see it. Jimmy Lai, if you haven't been following this, is a 74-year-old Hong Kong media magnate whose pro-democracy newspaper, Apple Daily, was one of the best-selling papers in the city until it was shut down by the authorities this summer. Jimmy Lai was sentenced for taking part in unauthorized assemblies. He had been charged with other offenses of incitement, etc., not for lighting candles, you know. And the Apple Daily is no ordinary newspaper. It has been operating as a, a platform for political mobilization. During 2014, 
what we call Occupy Central and what Western media called Umbrella Revolution. Mr. Lai was actually seen in the vicinity of our legislature, occupying tents, giving orders, I think doing a lot of behind-the-scene mobilization. So Echo Daily is no ordinary newspaper. The other media outlets are still functioning properly. But to lock away a 74-year-old man for over a year who happens to be the founder of a newspaper that you don't like for turning up at a vigil for 15 minutes could be seen as disproportionate and, you know, authoritarian, really. That's not really the reason for um, jailing him. It's because of offences under the Public Order Ordinance and the National Security Legislation. Okay. Amnesty International is now pulling out of Hong Kong because it feels it can't operate safely. That's not a good indictment of where Hong Kong is at now, is it? NGOs are still alive and well. I have received complaints about Amnesty International myself. I won't go into details, but many jurisdictions have national security law. All that's the national security law enacted by Beijing did is to block several loopholes in our legislation to create the offense of secession the offense of subversion and local terrorism and collusion with external forces. And these are gaps in our legislation, which we should have filled ourselves. But there are also very vague terms that can be used to lock away opposition politicians and members of the media that you don't like. And indeed, that has been the consequence of that law, hasn't it? I don't think the wording of our national security law is more vague than similar statutes in other jurisdictions. In Australia, you could commit an offence if you do something that prejudices the international relations of Australia with another country. You know, many jurisdictions have similar wording. But Australia has not arrested 50 members of the opposition in Parliament and it has not locked away senior journalists who run newspapers that the government don't like. You have to bear in mind that in 2019, large numbers of people were involved in unlawful activities. Actually, over 10,000 were, I think, under investigation. A much smaller number is being charged, including students and young people. And I have to say also, for example, on 21st July 2019, there were violent conflict in Yunlong, one area of Hong Kong. As a result of that, over 50 people in the so-called pro-government camp have been charged. So everyone is equal before the law. So why do you think the West sees what Beijing has done in Hong Kong in such a different way to you describing it? Why is Britain so angry and upset to see the laws being implemented in this way? Permit me to talk straight. I think Britain is simply following the leader of the U.S., singing the same tune of the U.S., in maligning Hong Kong, you know, in accusing Beijing of breaching the joint declaration, which is totally untrue. By the way, there is no reference whatsoever to elections or democracy in the joint declaration. I think Britain now is pretty sour grapes about Hong Kong. I think Britain is a nation in decline. It is no longer a first-tier power. From listening to Regina Ip, you can hear just how far China and the pro-Beijing authorities in Hong Kong remain 
from any Western ideas of freedom and democracy. So what happened here? How has the optimism of the Blair, Brown and Cameron years been so quickly washed away? Did Britain just get China completely wrong? I think the idea of more freedoms and more liberalism was certainly on the agenda in the 1980s and then again actually in the early 2000s. Professor Rana Mitter of Oxford University. Both of those essentially you know, disappeared. But the fact that there were more liberal periods, I think perhaps misled some outside observers into thinking that the Chinese Communist Party was moving towards, you know, losing its monopoly on power. And you have to remember that that is not the revolutionary story that China's ruling party tells about itself. It tells a story about a small group of young men on the run from the authorities in the 1920s. It tells the story of the Long March, which they marched thousands of miles in the most deadly conditions to regroup when they were being persecuted. It was a story of a bitter civil war as the war against the Japanese, both of which they were on the winning side. And then the huge efforts made you know, during Mao's period to transform a society. This is not the kind of party that says, actually, you know what, we've had our turn, that's fine, we're going to hand it over to someone else. So that was never, I think, really on the agenda, and it was somewhat misleading to think that it was. The veteran UK diplomat Peter Ricketts says, in fact, there were always two schools of thought about China within Whitehall, and he would watch the two sides fight it out in national security meetings in Number 10. In the 30 years after Deng Xiaoping started the opening up of China in the 1970s, the Western economy and the Chinese economy became more and more intertwined. Manufacturing, investment, trade increased massively. And that was, of course, of huge interest to businesses and to the economic side of British governments. At the same time, there was increasing evidence that China was building a security state, was stealing Western technologies and intellectual property, and was increasing its grip on the Chinese citizen. And I remembered when I was the National Security Advisor in 2010, I occasionally would have a meeting at which we had the economic side of Whitehall and the security side of Whitehall. And they saw two very different Chinas. And so British policy, even at that time, was having to try to square the circle of economic cooperation and yet a very wary, vigilant approach on the security side. And that balance has shifted over the last decade as Chinese security policies have become more sharply aggressive towards the West. It's fair to say in the early 2010s, the economic side of that argument was very much in the ascendancy in the British government, isn't it? It is. The economic side of the argument was winning the day, partly because China was actively working to integrate into the West, was promoting prosperity across the capitalist world, as well as in China. And the more repressive security state in China was not as apparent as it became under Xi Jinping. Can I rather cheekily ask, was it also because David Cameron paid an awful lot more attention to George Osborne at that time than he did to Theresa May? No, I don't think that's true, because I think, objectively, the China-UK trade and investment relationship was a very good and very strong one. And although China was promoting policies inside the country that we could absolutely be critical of, it was not seeking to export its security policies to Western countries in the way that it has done since then. It was not seeking actively an adversarial approach. I think what really changed 
from 2011 onwards was the arrival of Xi Jinping and a very much more aggressive policy using cyber, using the internet of security and control against Western companies and Western interests in China. And if I have a criticism, it would be that we were probably too slow to see how fast that pendulum was shifting. But Professor Rana Mitter of Oxford University believes President Xi is more the symptom than the cause of how China's approach to the West has shifted over recent years. I think that there has been a significant change in the last decade or so under the presidency of Xi Jinping. Things began to change and harden. And, you know, if you look at where we are today, decade and a half later, we're in a China where there's very, very top-down, technologically-enabled social control by the party. There are very few NGO-type organisations that can operate in, in China anymore. Lawyers get locked up, dissident academics, you know, are fired from their jobs. And, of course, the shutdown of Hong Kong and the repression of the Uyghurs are part of that story. It's become an easy thing to say that this was because of Xi Jinping. But I don't think that's quite right, because you can see the beginnings of this hardening of the authoritarianism several years before Xi Jinping came to power, probably about 2008, 2009. And one of the reasons for that was the world financial crisis, which basically made the bottom fall out of any explanation the Western world could give China about how the Western system was better. And plenty of Chinese leaders, notably then Prime Minister Wen Jiabao, pretty publicly went on the record lecturing their American former mentors, saying, we used to think we could learn lessons from you, but after this, what lessons are we supposed to learn? Because China's economy, of course, took a different path, and that gave them more confidence to actually say, why on earth should we listen to these people from the outside? In that context, the coming to power of Xi Jinping in 2012-2013 seems more like a sort of symbolization of that new turn towards an authoritarianism, rather than him getting into power and then changing everything. But there's no doubt that his style of government suits the tenor of that kind of Chinese sense, both of confidence, but also of extreme defensiveness about where they are in equal measure. On the one hand, saying China is finally getting its, you know, chance to sit at the top table of world politics, but also everyone in the world is out to get China, and therefore we have to be very careful, we can't allow too much free speech, we can't allow too much you know, civil society to emerge, because who knows what foreign agents may be hiding behind these, waiting to uh, overturn the system. So it's a China that's become much more powerful in some ways in the last 10 years, but much less at ease with itself. The British government has, perhaps belatedly, recognised China's new approach and shifted its own position accordingly, triggered partly by the brutal crackdown in Hong Kong, but also by an increasingly hawkish group of backbench Conservative MPs. Among those leading the way is Tom Tugendhat, chairman of the influential Commons Foreign Affairs Committee and leader of the China Research Group of Tory MPs. One of the first things I wanted to do was have a look at where Britain's relationship with China was and see where the areas of improvement possible were. And so we reached out, as you do, and we had a few links to the um, various different elements of the Chinese administration, including the National People's Congress, as the uh, Potemkin Parliament is named. And we got ourselves invited over. And so I started off on a pretty positive light. But within weeks, I was being bullied by the Chinese ambassador who was demanding that I ask a member of the committee to apologise formally for their contact with Taiwan. I had to explain to him that that's not the way committee chairmanship 
networks. My security file, as it were, was being read to me in very clear and particularly threatening ways by the Chinese ambassador who was listing everybody I'd met on a trip to China a number of years earlier in a particularly hostile fashion. I mean, I didn't feel threatened, but it was attempting to be threatening. And that's where my caution as to where we were going really kicked off. When a decision loomed over whether to allow Chinese tech giant Huawei to help build the UK's next generation 5G comms infrastructure, Tugendhat helped lead the rebellion. So when I first raised concerns about the Huawei decision, I raised it just after Theresa May had become Prime Minister with the then Culture Secretary, commenting that I didn't think it was wise to put such a contentious provider into our critical national infrastructure. And I remember speaking to colleagues at the time, and it was clearly, a, um, to put it politely, an outlier position. By the time this came to a vote in 2019, I think it was, the vote was very clearly about the challenge that China was posing to the, the rules of the world that kept us prosperous and safe and peaceful. And we got a lot more support than I think anybody imagined. So I think it, it certainly was backbench pressure that changed that. And it certainly does make a difference when we work together because, you know, the Prime Minister still describes himself as Sinophile, which, I, I mean, I, I would personally agree with. My problem is not China, my problem is the Chinese Communist Party. Britain's relations with China, of course, can hardly exist in a vacuum. The third and perhaps most important factor straining the relationship over recent years has been pressure from an increasingly combative Washington, still following the path set by former President Donald Trump. We are now making it clear to China the theft of American jobs and wealth has come to an end. China is now one of the two superpowers and will continue to be so for the next generation. Peter Ricketts. And so we're now into a period of generational competition between America and China. And that is going to be a very difficult era for other Western countries, caught in the force field between America and China. And I think particularly so for Britain, because Britain being outside the EU is not anchored in a larger economic bloc, which can, to some extent, defend its own interests. So, for example, when it comes to the future of the internet, for example, the struggle will be between an American capitalist approach and a Chinese approach, and the Europeans trying to fit in as best they can. In my mind, anything to do with security we will naturally be allies of the Americans. But in the commercial area, I think that Britain has an evident interest in having a working relationship with each of the world's economic superpowers, including China. And I don't think we as a country can afford an outright confrontational approach on the areas of commercial and economic and investment activity. So I think we probably have a rather different balance of interests from America, which is big enough to look at an across-the-board confrontation with China. In a way, I think we are probably closer to our European neighbours who need to steer a course between competition and cooperation, which is perhaps not the same course as the Americans. And do you think that's going to be possible as this plays out and those two sides move further away from one another? Or are we just going to have to pick a side in the end? I hope we won't have to pick a side because I don't think outright confrontation with China will make sense for Britain or for other European countries. 
And so over time, I think that British policy towards China will tend to gravitate more in the direction of a European consensus on where that balance should lie. My final question about UK-China relations is the one that actually keeps me awake at night, or it would do if I didn't already have a five-month-old baby in my bedroom. The prospect of relations descending into what would essentially be a worst-case scenario, open conflict between China and the West. There are, after all, numerous examples through history of bloody warfare when a rising power has threatened the existing hegemony. I'm always a bit nervous about extrapolating from history. And certainly there are plenty of cases of a rising power coming into conflict with a declining power. The difference is that in almost all of those cases, they were before the nuclear age. And I think the presence of nuclear weapons in the equation and the fact that China is hugely increasing its nuclear stockpile, I think that is a massive factor which weighs against outright old-fashioned military conflict. So I don't see that as the most likely risk. No, I think much more likely is China trying to beat the West to the next generation technologies and then use them to ensure Chinese dominance, at least in Asia, and grinding down Western capitalism rather than confronting it outright. I'm not actually sure that the Chinese have a vision of world domination either. They want to be top of the roost in Asia, and they want to make sure the West is not in a position to challenge their regime, which is in many ways a fragile regime. It's an anxious leadership sitting on top of a billion and a half people, and always worried that the people might be stirring in the countryside. So they want to make sure that their system is proof against Western subversion. I'm not sure they're looking for world domination, so I don't myself think outright military conflict is where this is going to land up but long-run generational struggle. Is that an optimistic note to finish this podcast on? It doesn't quite feel like it. Though, given the state of the world at the moment, I guess anything that doesn't end in some form of Armageddon could seem kind of positive. But what's clear here is that the UK-China relationship is far more complex than most of us here in Britain maybe appreciate, shaped by a tumultuous history which many of us have forgotten and driven now by a new form of Chinese nationalism that even fewer of us really understand. But if the story of the 21st century is to be the story of China securing, or perhaps just retaking, its place at the very top tier of geopolitics, then it's a relationship that Britain is going to be grappling with for many decades to come. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not meant to be time sensitive, so why not have a look through our back catalogue too for others that you might enjoy. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week for our last episode of the year. I'll see you then.